with you this morning. Hope that uh, things are going well. We've got a couple announcements for before we get into our lesson, and so let me kind of mention those. Uh, we're continuing to collect items and contributions for uh, the Bahama Relief. Um, we will be dedicating our primary uh, resources from Blessed to be a Blessing for the Bahamas, and so that will be on the 24th of November. And uh, we will have a special contribution on that date as well as a collection of items. And so this is the most updated list we have of things that are needed there. We will update this list before the 24th. So please continue to check the website and the bulletin. And um, and then we look forward to being able to, to help in whatever ways we can uh, with the ongoing effort uh, uh, there. Um, I think they're about ready to be able to go into Marsh Harbor and Abaco Island and uh, and begin to think through what next steps are. And so we're glad to be able to help with them in that. Um, next Sunday will be the children's ministry potluck for the preschool. So bring some food uh, and, and share it with uh, with the folks that are gathered, the, the families. And uh, it's always a, an enjoyable time kids playing together and families uh, interacting with one another. And then on uh, November 14th, there will be a meeting, an organizational meeting at Debbie Schwepp's home. Uh, The Sunset Women's Ministry is partnering with uh, a ministry entitled Days for Girls. And so uh, if you're able to attend that meeting, um, there's also uh, different uh, details that you can contact her about specifically, or you can look on the website or in the bulletin for some further details. Her contact information is there. And then, as I mentioned, on November 24th, we will have our uh, Blessed to be a Blessing. It will be a bilingual assembly with a special reception to follow. I'll have uh, some words about that special reception at the conclusion of our uh, assembly today. <coughs> We've had a lot of uh, funerals lately. There have been too many. Uh, Funerals are hard. They're hard for the church, but they're hard for the individuals uh, who are going through that process. And we've had numerous families on both sides of our uh, congregation. Uh, It's hard to uh, uh, deal with not only the absence that is created by a dear one's parting, but also... uh, trying to continue with life, and I appreciate so much the uh, the strength that has been demonstrated by various family members in, um, in continuing to be faithful. Uh, for the most part, funerals are difficult and challenging, but one of the things that's kind of a, a, um, a positive that you don't really expect and look for, but uh, invariably, after a funeral or memorial service or a celebration of life service, I come away knowing that person just a little bit better because I tend to see the person here in the years that we've known each other but didn't know so much about the previous life and where they had been and what they had done. And so um, seeing, seeing that part of their life has, has, is always a blessing to learn, oh, they used to do this, or they did that, or they met where, and 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 it's not something that you expect or look for, uh, but it's there. You know, other than Catherine, uh, uh, none of you know that I used to be a chef and a cook 
in a restaurant, well, you might have known or heard me speak about it. You've never seen me in that kind of a role. You've never seen me come home at 2 in the morning after closing down a restaurant, smelling of beef and uh, uh, smoke and, uh, and, and waking up my wife so that we could enjoy beef at a time when we couldn't afford it because there were a couple orders that, uh, that, that, that uh, were, were abandoned there on the grill. Um, I, I used to be a plumber. And worked for years before coming to Christ and after. While I was at Freed Hardman, I did plumbing on a number of uh, folks' homes. Um, uh, uh, most of you have never seen me run or play sports. I used to be pretty mean on the uh, tennis court, especially if I lost. And I lost regularly. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, if you think about it, most of you just think that I've been pretty much an older, balding, fat guy for all my life. And uh, and that's not true. It didn't always uh, look that way. Um, but this is who you see and this is who you know. And so we kind of fall into that, that little trap. Well, the same thing happens at church. You kind of fall into the trap of thinking, oh, OK, so the way we're doing church right now is the way it's always been done. And and this is the way that it's supposed to be done. And so if we vary from what other churches or what even Sunset or South Miami or Central might have done in previous years, then it's like, well, wait a second. Uh, uh, why are we doing that? What's There's something not right here. And, and so, um, you know, it's particularly challenging in our fellowship because we have, and I wouldn't say it's arrogance, but it borders on it, but we've we are very confident, let me put it that way, that we have kind of nailed what worship in the first century looked like. That's the perception, right? And, um, and, and, and so the idea that we have restored the church is a prominent feature of our fellowship. It's not always accurate. In fact, I would differ. But it's what many of us believe deep down. But when we go to scriptures and we go to historical records of what assemblies in the first century looked like, we realize very quickly that what we're doing today has very little resemblance in the practice of what it might have looked like 2,000 years ago. Not saying that it's wrong, it's just different. And as a part of the function of living in a modern world and living in a world where germs and contamination is a concern, living in a world where... Um, we're dealing with much larger churches and crowds of people than would have existed in the first century. Uh, you know, we talk about those 3,000 that were buried, uh, that were buried in baptism and, and born again on, on the day of Pentecost. Well, most of those didn't stay in Jerusalem. They were people from other cities and other countries and they all went home and there was this small band of brothers, as it were. And as a result, that church looked very Jewish. It smelled and felt and listened like a Jewish church. And it wasn't until years came or went by that it began becoming a non-Jewish church. And uh, and then things began to change. And a lot of the conflict that we read in the scriptures about first century church has to do with that conflict of Jews and Gentiles and, and what it looks like. <coughs> Churches met most likely in people's homes. It was very informal. Singing would have been mostly from the Psalms, mostly directed at God. Some of the Psalms are directed to one another. It guaranteed was not in four-part harmony, and it would have sounded very strange to us in our world 
the readings and the sermons were mostly just reading scripture, reading the Old Testament Psalms, reading the prophets, uh, reading Paul's letters when a letter would come in. Uh, they, they would read that in the assembly, and that was the content of their sermon. Uh, once the Gospels were written, they would read portions of the Gospel to one another, and uh, that was the word of exhortation, and that was the word that was shared. And at the conclusion, there was not an invitation, hymn, or a call to come on down front. Uh, and, and in fact, that particular practice was not added until years later, to the 1700s. It was actually invented here in the United States. And it was a part of the revival movement that was spreading across the frontier United States at that particular time. And, and preachers in those days were seeking to motivate people to make a decision. And so they had what was initially called the anxious bench that they would invite people to sit on. If they knew that they were dealing with something, well, sit on the anxious bench and be anxious during this sermon so that at the conclusion of the sermon, you can make a decision. Many churches had altars at the front, and so the call was to come to the front to the altar, hence the name, the altar call. In churches of Christ, we don't have altars, but we developed what has been known as the invitation, uh, the, the hymn of invitation at the conclusion of the lesson where people are invited to the front. All of this was happening in the 1700s, the 1800s, and it was a convenient way for preachers, especially itinerant preachers who are going from place to place, to gather people together and encourage and motivate people to make a decision for Christ. People would bring their friends, their neighbors. Uh, we wouldn't call them revivals as much. We would call them gospel meetings. Perhaps you've heard some of this language. And uh, and you would bring your neighbor to the gospel meeting to hear the invited preacher. Sometimes he was out of town. Uh, and there the preacher would expound on the need for them to make a decision to be saved. Uh, to be baptized, to come to the Lord. They were lost. They need Jesus. They need to repent of their sins and their sinful life and through baptism have their sins washed away. And for the most part, that's how church was done for years and years and years and years. Now, there were excesses. And some of you will remember, perhaps, times where you knew someone needed to go forward. And the song leader knew someone needed to go forward. And the preacher knew someone needed to go forward. And they would continue just as I am for five, six, seven, and more verses. There are accounts of the invitation or the altar call or that whole period of the mourner's bench or the anxious bench going on for over an hour trying to get those one or two people to be motivated by the emotion of the moment. And so that practice that began in revivals and in gospel meetings worked its way into the regular Sunday assembly. And so, as practice, we generally conclude, the preachers conclude their message with an invitation to come to the front to either put on Christ in baptism or to confess some sin, or now we've broadened it to include a request for prayers. Now, the reason we're talking about this today is because we're talking about reaching our neighbors. 
This is the second lesson in a four-part series on the assembly. And last week we talked about how when we come together as a church, we are entering the most holy place. We are entering the place where God meets his people. We are entering and going up onto Mount Zion where God's presence his very presence with his heavenly host and all the faithful ones who have gone on before. This is not just a town hall meeting. God is here and is doing something in us and among us that can't happen any other time. We can commune with God on the beach. We can be with God in different ways, personally, individually, and even in a small group. But there's something that happens when Sunday comes and The church is gathered together to worship, to praise, to recognize his influence and his uh, his uh, uh, his influence in our lives. (coughs) But as I mentioned last week, there's a lot of things that are happening. So that's one huge part. Uh, A second part that we will talk about next week. uh, Well, Brian, uh, uh, Brian, uh, uh, Robert and uh, and Paul in Spanish, Paul Roland will be talking about next week uh, is how. As we draw near to God, we also draw near to one another. And there's that element where we are to encourage and edify and strengthen one another. Uh, And and so I'm looking forward to hearing those messages. Catherine and I will be in below freezing weather in D.C. next weekend. Um, uh, Very envious of the 80s that you'll be having here. Uh, But um, uh, uh, Dad's birthday party, uh, his 90th is next week. And so we're going to go and celebrate with them. And after that, we'll, we'll talk about how we draw near to God with our children and what that looks like and how can we allow them to witness what we are experiencing here among the family on a, in a Sunday gathering. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about how we reach our neighbors through and in the assembly. So let me, <coughs> let me just make a little disclaimer here that um, for our visitors, uh, we're, we're kind of drawing back the curtain a little bit, okay? And, and you're kind of kind of see some of the workings of what happens in, <coughs> and in my mind, uh, which is a scary place to be, uh, but you'll only be there for a few minutes, I promise, and hopefully you'll come out uh, unscathed. Um, but we're going to be talking a little bit about what this assembly, how the assembly functions, and specifically how I might function in this process of, of reaching our neighbors. Because I think we all understand that there is that element, but it's helpful to kind of see how Scripture paints it. Now, the Bible doesn't talk much about seeker services. and doesn't talk much about doing evangelism in church, even though we would all recognize that that is a part of what's happening on Sunday morning. So the, the one text that does talk about the assembly more than any other text is 1 Corinthians 14. And in this chapter, there is a mention about outsiders or inquirers or seekers. So 1 Corinthians 14 is where the Bible will talk about the assembly, where Paul is going to talk about the assembly more than any other one place. And one of the reasons he's writing, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, is because of the problems they've had. The underlying issue at 1 Corinthians, in Corinthians, in in Corinth, was there was this unhealthy sense of independence and rivalry. People were thinking that 
the best way to do church is to follow certain individuals and form these little cliques. And then they tried to one-up one another in the spirit of Christianity. God had given this church spiritual gifts, had blessed them with spiritual gifts. And they thought the best thing that they could do was to take those spiritual gifts and convert them into some sort of sick game where my gift is better than your gift. And the spiritual gift that everyone wanted, the one that was most coveted, the gift to end all gifts was speaking in tongues. For some reason, the community in Corinth had gravitated towards that. And what Paul is doing in these chapters, uh, 12, 13, and 14, is to say, tongues is not it. Speaking in tongues is not all that. There are actually better gifts. In fact, he's going to say in chapter 13, or at the conclusion of, uh, of 13, uh, at chapter 12 leading into 13, the, the best gift and the best way is love. That is the gift that beats all gifts, if you are interested in trying to compare. And so part of his, his purpose is to emphasize the, the superiority of prophecy over tongues and to minimize the role of tongues. Okay, That's what he's going to be doing. And he uses the presence of visitors to make his point. That's where we're going to get to. So as we read this text... 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 23 through 25. I just want to uh, encourage you to look for, he's going to talk about tongues speaking, and he's going to talk about prophecy. But I want you to listen to and read for who is doing these things in this church context. Okay? So here's the text. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or seekers or outsiders or visitors can all be translated that way. If the visitors or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? <laughs> you know, I've had people suggest that when we have bilingual assemblies and visitors come in, that they're going to think you guys are nuts. <laughs> and, and, and we might agree at some level. But when you walk into an assembly where everyone is speaking a different language and there is this noise, and whether it be a joyful noise or not, there's this noise where nobody knows what's being said. And we would understand that these are untranslated tongues. No one is translating anything. An outsider would come in and say, oh, this is just like what they do down the street at the pagan temple. What, what do you guys have that's any different? They're going to say, you're just as crazy as those people. But if an unbeliever, verse 24, or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all people as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, now, did you catch who was doing the tongue speaking? Everyone. And who was doing the prophesying? Everyone. And so you have a sense where 
the entire congregation that is gathered at Corinth is expressing and participating in this process of worshiping God, encouraging one another, and then the visitors are kind of observing and watching. I know there's been numerous discussions over the years about, is this assembly for members or for visitors? In fact, I know of one church that had their members-only assembly and then had a service or an assembly that was designed more for visitors. Well, at sunset, we don't do that. In fact, we only have one primary assembly per week, which makes it a bit challenging because there aren't, uh, there aren't times for us to talk about things like this. And so Sunday morning ends up being the time that we do that. Tongues, speaking in tongues, won't impress an outsider. Having the best worship band in the United States won't impress an outsider. They can see better stuff than that on America's Got Talent or whatever uh, karaoke bar that they might go to. Our audiovisual displays will not impress high-tech people because we're pretty low-tech here. But words, prophecy, teaching, clearly and calmly spoken, interaction between one another does make a difference. And when an outsider, according to Paul, sees that taking place in the assembly, they will then fall down and worship saying, yeah, God's really here. God's really here. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and this is not the purpose. This is not why we do it. We don't do this to look good for visitors. But if someone were to observe you in the assembly or to observe me, would they come away thinking, wow, God's here. I can see it by the way this person is praising God. I can see it in the way that they take the Lord's Supper seriously and that the way that they sing or get involved, the, the way they greet one another, the way they go out of their way to make sure that no one is not greeted and welcomed and made to feel welcome here. W would they say that when they watch me worship, they would want to fall down and worship too? Or would they say, that guy doesn't look like he wants to be here. Looks like he can't wait for the game to start. Looks like he can't wait to get to the restaurant. So these motivations are secondary at best. But it's part of how we can use our assembly to reach our neighbors. Now, what is my role in all of that? Well, over the years, I've had numerous conversations with individuals, and uh, invariably, the expectation is, well, it's my job to do the evangelizing in the assembly. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm paid for. And, and I, can, I, I, can take, I can own some of that. I, I've had individuals, and, and not here at Sunset, so you don't have to start looking around thinking who it was. Um, I, I've had individuals tell me that they brought a visitor. And and so make sure you get them. Make sure you custom fit your message 
to their particular sin or their particular situation. And I got into a lengthy, this was before a sermon, I got into a lengthy discussion. I said, so you're wanting me to put aside my regular sermon and just choose something that will make this person feel bad enough about their sin that they will want to do a change. And they said, yeah, that's what, we, that's what, that's what I expect. And my reply generally when I'm talking to someone in this kind of context is, you know, I'm just a talking head. I have about as much credibility as an unknown speaker, as a car salesman, or as a politician. And the statistics indicate preachers generally don't rank real high, unfortunately, on the credibility scale. And what I tell these folks is that, you know, believe it or not, you have a lot more influence in that person's life than I do. I can stand up and preach, but they know, you all know, that this is my job. But it looks and feels a whole lot different when someone whose job it isn't goes out of the way to say, you know, this has been so meaningful to me that I want to share it with you. And so I can verbally encourage everyone in the assembly, your neighbors and my neighbors and people that are here. But every one of us has the opportunity to demonstrate with our actions Monday through Saturday and then also on Sunday, the love of Christ in the way we treat our neighbors. Now, in my experience, Almost all evangelism takes place outside the assembly. Those conversations, those Bible studies, those chats. If you think about your own conversion and the ones that you've been a part of, where did that happen? Now, a sermon might have had something to do with it, but invariably, when someone comes forward with the desire to be baptized and I talk to them, they'll say something like, yeah, I've been thinking about it this week and, 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 and I decided yesterday that I wanted to do this because I know it's important and I know it's the right thing to do. So the decision is generally made before coming to the assembly and then sometimes the sermon is the tipping point. Sometimes it's a decision that's already made. But, but let me tell you why sometimes I'm a little hesitant to push too hard and to get too emotional. Because I know that you can make decisions based on emotion that don't last and don't stick. I know young men and women who have been baptized as younger children or younger adolescents, younger adults. Who once they hit 16, 17, 18, 20, they think, wow, what was I doing? I got baptized because Sarah got baptized or I got baptized because so-and-so and all of us in our class was doing it. And so I don't even know if it was real. And they want to be baptized again because now they're unsure. You know, the Bible teaches when we're baptized into Christ, we are entering into a new relationship with him. Baptism is where we cease to exist as our old self and we become this new self, renewed and washed and forgiven. It's kind of like what the Bible refers to when it talks about getting married to Jesus. 
When you get married to someone, your your single self ceases to exist, and now you are one item. Before Catherine and I got married, it was Catherine and Jim. Now we're Gemini. (laughs) Now, what would you think of me as a minister if at the next wedding I performed... After I make the pronouncement, I declare you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. Everybody hoots and hoots. I say, wait, 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 wait a second. Is there anybody else out here that wants to get married today? Let's find out. How about you, you two people there? You're kind of sitting close together back there. Are, are you interested in making this decision? Hey, let's go ahead and push this thing, right? Let's go ahead and get married today. Well, you would think that's pretty irresponsible, Jim. Because, see, I value marriage. And I would not want any two individuals to enter into marriage without really thinking it through. And I'm not alone. Miami-Dade County, when you go to get your marriage license, if you have not had premarital counseling, three-day waiting period. About as long as it takes to get a gun. If you show up and say, I want to get married, they say, okay, come back in three days. Fill out the form, come back in three days. Think about it, cool off, and then let's talk. Because they know that rash decisions are not always the best decisions. If you want to get married, there's places in the world you can do that. But in Miami-Dade County, three days, unless you've had premarital counseling where they assume you've kind of thought through that. And that's what I want. I want people who make the decision for Jesus to do it not based on feeling guilty or feeling pressured or feeling like, "Ah, i got to get these people off my back, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I, I, I want people to make a decision that says, I recognize that without Jesus, I have no life. I have no hope. Jesus is the only answer. And once I make that decision, I want to live with him and for him and allow him to live with me and through me until my time on earth is end. So my encouragement in my sermons will often sound like, take the next step. I don't know what the next step is for you. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's time of prayer. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's asking someone to talk with you. To help you work through a particular issue. Maybe there's an issue that's kind of hanging you up theologically that you want to kind of work through. Many times people work through these issues week after week after month after month and then get to a point where they're ready to make that decision. And if that's your decision today, we would love to facilitate that. That's my encouragement to all. What's the next step? What does it look like for you to take a step closer to God? If you're already baptized and you are a member here at Sunset, what I want to do is to help you and encourage you to be more of that member and motivate you to a way that you will act in such a way that the person living next to you or the person living across the street from you or the person who has their cubicle next to you or the person with whom your friends on Facebook can say, wow, I can tell this guy or this gal is really sold out for Jesus. 
If you are here today as a visitor or a seeker, I apologize for the, 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 the content. But on the other hand, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that this church is a place where you can be a family. And you can feel loved. And you can feel supported. That if you have a situation that's going on in your life, there will be people who will call and text and look after you and provide support for you. If you go through a moment of difficulty, hospital, illness, other kinds of challenges, the elders are more than willing to pretty much clear their agenda to be able to talk with you and to pray for you and to help out. And so many of us have received that kind of counsel and that kind of blessing. And so my heart's desire As Paul will say in Romans, my heart's desire is that you all be saved. But I'm not willing to risk your salvation on an emotional appeal that tomorrow morning you're going to have buyer's regret. And you're going to feel like an idiot and wonder, what in the world was I thinking? (laughs) I want you to wake up tomorrow after you decide for Jesus today and say, that was the best day of my life. And I can't wait. The next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday. So as always, we're going to conclude this lesson with an invitation. With the opportunity for you to express how you want us to walk alongside you for your next step. If it's something that I personally or we as a church can do to help you, we're here. If it's an issue, if it's a prayer request, if it's a concern, we'd love to walk alongside you with that. If it's a decision that you've made in your heart after thinking through and deciding that this is what you want to do, we would be honored to participate with you in this death, burial and resurrection that is baptism. (coughs) Or if you have any other prayer request. This is a wonderful time to share those and express those. So I'm going to invite you all to stand uh, and we're going to sing. Paco will be here at the front and uh, and I'll be here as well. And we can receive you and help you make the next step, whatever that looks like for your life.